you'd like to tonight, I'd like to invite you to turn to Matthew, the 16th chapter, where there we're going to find the greatest confession that anyone could ever make. And that is the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, that's a confession that we elicit generally from people when we baptize them. We generally say, the Ethiopian eunuch said that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we look to the person who is going to be baptized and oftentimes we say, what do you believe? And they will say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Have you ever thought about that phrase? Have you ever thought about why we elicit that phrase from that individual? Well, there's many reasons. But one reason is because if Jesus is not the Son of God, then nothing that we do religiously makes any sense at all. It has no power because if Jesus is not the Son of God, then we might as well meet in any man's name rather than by the authority of the God of heaven. Well, Peter understood that. And we're going to notice a confession tonight that Peter makes when he himself, having been asked by Jesus, Who am I? says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we're going to analyze that just for a few minutes tonight. But before we do, I want us to look at really the context of this passage in Matthew chapter 16. You know, one of the favorite ways I have of studying God's Word is just expository, where you just take the text and you deal with the text, and verse by verse, word by word, word sometimes, you sort of plow through it and you sort of, uh, sort of tease out of it at times the deeper meaning. Now, of course, I think we could read this passage this, late, this evening and gain tremendous from it, but there's some things tucked in behind this passage that I think will help us in appreciating where Jesus is at this point in His ministry, and of course, where the apostles are too. Now, of course, when we look at Matthew chapter 16, we're probably about six months from Jesus' death. For about two and a half years, Jesus has spent time with this little group of men that He had called from fishing and from tax collecting and from other walks of life, and He had trained them. They had seen Him do many miracles. They had seen Him even raise the dead. And so, Jesus, of course, knows that eventually, even though at this point their faith is still weak, He is going to send them with the Great Commission into all of the world to preach the Gospel. Now, of course, at this point, as I mentioned, they're weak. And at this point, many times you look at the Apostles and you think, do they even know who Jesus is? I mean, they have walked with Him, they've talked with Him, they've slept beside Him, they've eaten with Him, they've seen, again, His miracles. And sometimes He would just look at them and say, Oh, you of little faith. You're just a little faith people because you don't even truly understand who stands in your midst. And so sometimes when we look at the apostles, we see ourselves because we ourselves are so little faith people, really, when it's all said and done. Well, of course, Jesus has spent time now with His apostles and I like to consider Matthew 16 as almost graduation. It's kind of the final test, if you will. Now, of course, there's going to be a greater test coming down the road as Jesus eventually makes His way to Jerusalem, and they literally watch their Messiah, they watch their leader crucified on a cross, and really most of them will scatter like, like a sheep. But nonetheless, Jesus gives them a little bit of a test here. Now, He does that in an interesting way. Because as we look at just the chronology and also the topography of this passage and then also the land of Israel, what we see Jesus doing in verse 13 is Jesus takes His apostles to the northernmost limits of the land of Palestine. 
Look at with me, uh, look, look with me at verse 13, where there Jesus says, or Matthew records, and Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is the northernmost limits of the nation of Israel, even to this day. You know, when you go to the map of the nation of Israel, or the land of Palestine as it is known, in Jesus' day it was divided into three sections. In the north you had Galilee, and that was called Galilee of the Gentiles. And that was a Jewish area, but an area also that was sort of weak. It didn't have a lot of religious strength. That was all believed to be kind of down in the south in the area of Judea, Jerusalem, where all the scribal schools were and all the rabbis kind of hung out. And in the middle, between Judea and the south, where Jerusalem was, where the religious center, the temple was, and that northern area called Galilee of the Gentiles, where Jesus, by the way, based His ministry at a town called Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, you have an area called Samaria. Now, Samaria figures very prominently, of course, into Jesus' ministry because you remember, for example, in John chapter 4, Jesus encounters a woman at the well in Samaria, at Sychar. So, that was kind of a middle land, and it was composed of folks who were a little bit Jewish-leaning, but really had tainted and changed the Jewish religion. And so, the middle section was really sort of rejected by most Jews. And of course, we could talk a long time about that tonight, but I want to take you back up north. Because up north, Galilee of the Gentiles was an area that even from the Old Testament had always struggled with paganism. In fact, you remember when Israel had finally made its entrance after having joined in the wilderness and they now come to the land of Canaan, the various tribes went out in various places. And this area to the north was very paganistic. It was very uh, much uh, worshiping of Baal and the gods and goddesses of the day. Well, when Jesus came along, the same was true. In fact, there was a place up there called the area of Caesarea Philippi, in the Old Testament it was called the city of Dan, and it was a pagan out-center in Jesus' day as well. And so Jesus takes His people, His apostles, right to this area. Now, you know, you might think that having spent all of this time with Jesus, uh, with the apostles, Jesus would take them down maybe near the temple, down where the rabbis and all the schools that mentioned were. But He doesn't do that. He takes them right into the heart of arguably one of the most paganistic part of the land of Israel. It was the northern outpost. It was right at the, Mount, uh, right at the base of Mount Hermon. And right where, uh, again, even in Jesus' day, the Greeks were worshiping the false gods and the goddesses. Now, you know, I don't know if there is a particular reason Jesus did that. We're not told. But I can surmise that there may be at least two. One, Jesus wanted to get away from the crowds. Jesus oftentimes would resort away from the crowds just to spend some quiet devotional time with His apostles. And you know, I think that's important. You know, we live in such a busy world today that we see ourselves coming and going. We meet ourselves coming and going and don't even recognize who we are because we're so distracted by things in the world. Even Jesus saw the importance of getting away from time to time. It may also be, though, that Jesus takes them into this area because it was pagan. You know, really, Christians many times through the years, and we'll see this as we talk about church history, have often wanted to cloister themselves off. They've often wanted to concoct monasteries or, you know, some sort of a system where they're closed. But, you know, Jesus, that's not His gospel. Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone, to every creature. 
You see, Jesus was getting ready to send these 12 men into a pagan world, a world that had never even known the real God. And so he takes them maybe to this area to demonstrate to them that, listen, you need to start learning to, to confess who Jesus is even in the midst of a difficult environment. Now, we don't know that for sure, but it certainly would have been, would have been true that this would have been a difficult environment. So Jesus takes them up to this area called Caesarea Philippi, and notice what he says. Jesus says, he asks his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now let's look at that verse. He says, who do men say that I am? Now, what is he talking about here? He's talking about the word on the street. You know, in that day, as it is today, though they didn't have mass communication, the word got around. Jesus had, of course, based his ministry just a few miles south of there in Capernaum. He had done many miracles. Many followed him to see a miracle or to be fed with the loaves and the fishes. Even down in Jerusalem, they had found out who he was and had heard about this new rabbi on the seed and had even sent up spies on various occasions to Galilee. And so on the street, there were many words about who this fellow was. Now, you know, the Jews had this messianic hope. They longed for a Messiah. They wanted someone to come and cast out the Romans because many years before Jesus came, about 63 B.C., the Romans had come in and they had taken over the land of Palestine. The Roman Empire was in full sway during Jesus' day. And the Jews hated that. They wanted someone to come in, cast out the Romans, and be a political Messiah. And that's one of the reasons they rejected Jesus, because they wanted a king like David had been a king, a man of war, a man of battle. Well, Jesus was not that type of king at all. In fact, before Pilate, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so these Jews had a messianic hope. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted someone who would come and save them, but they thought it was political. But, so they had many misunderstandings about the nature of what Jesus was going to do or the kingdom. They had many misunderstandings about what the mission of Jesus was going to be. And so because of that, as the apostles had walked and talked and rubbed elbows with their fellow Jews, they had heard a lot of rumors about people who, who people thought Jesus was. And Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Now, he identifies himself, by the way, as the Son of Man. And I want to spend just a second on that. I don't want to get bogged down on that. But, you know, we know that Jesus was the Son of God, right? But we also know that Jesus was the Son of Man. And when Jesus says he's the Son of Man, he's simply identifying himself in his human form. In other words, he is saying to the apostles, when you talk to folks on the street... And those that have witnessed me in my human life, who are they thinking that I am? Now, it is true that back in the book of Daniel, the term son of man also is a messianic term. So, either way, you catch Jesus as being the Messiah. But in his physical form, in his Jewish lineage, people were confused about who Jesus was and what really Jesus came to accomplish. So he said, who do people say that I am? Well, the answers begin to float back in verse 14. And so they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, you remember, and Jesus were probably cousins. Jesus was probably about six months younger than John the Baptist. John the Baptist had come first, having been born, of course, by uh, the parents of Elizabeth and Zechariah. And he had preached the kingdom is at hand. And you remember who John was. John was that sort of that wily figure who lived out in the wilderness. He ate grasshoppers, locusts, and wild honey. Uh, he preached hellfire and brimstone. He was a real rugged outdoor guy. 
And he preached, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Well, you know, Jesus came not long after that. In fact, really, Jesus did not ramp up his ministry until John had been thrown in prison. Remember, John had preached against Herod Antipas' marriage to his brother Philip's wife, and uh, he was thrown in prison and eventually beheaded. And so, Jesus at that point, when John is in prison, begins to preach. But guess what he preaches? Basically, the same message. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. So, here you have Jesus, who has been preaching basically the same message as John the Baptist, and some think, well, maybe this is John the Baptist. Now, the only problem with that is a couple of chapters earlier, John the Baptist had been beheaded. Thrown in prison for preaching against that adulterous marriage, had been beheaded, but the people of that day were superstitious. In fact, Herod himself was scared when Jesus came upon the scene and began to preach because he thought it was John the Baptist risen from the dead. He was scared to death. He thought, oh man, you know, John has risen again and he's back to haunt me. So you see, superstitions were running wild. And some thought, well, Jesus, maybe he is John the Baptist. But then others had other opinions. They said, well, maybe you're not John the Baptist, but maybe you're Elijah. Now, Elijah is really the quintessential Old Testament prophet. You know, when you think of Elijah, you think prophet. Because when you think of Elijah, you may think of calling down fire from heaven. You may think of Baal and those prophets, and you may think of Ahab and Jezebel and that whole wonderful story over there in about 1 Kings 18 or so. And so some thought, well, maybe Jesus is Elijah. Now, why would they think that? Jesus didn't call down fire from heaven. He wasn't a, uh, you know, a wild sort of figure. No, but the Jews believed that before the Messiah would come, Elijah would come back. In fact, the last book, the last chapter of the Bible, the Old Testament, said that Malachi, in Malachi's day that before the Messiah came, John the Baptist would come, or uh, that uh, Elijah rather would come back. Now, of course, Jesus points out in the very next chapter, Matthew 17, that really what, really uh, the fulfillment of that was John the Baptist. But they thought Elijah was going to come back and usher in the Messianic era. And so when they saw Jesus and he was preaching these things about changing your heart and your mind and getting back to religious principles, they thought, well, maybe he's not the Messiah, but maybe he's the one that's going to usher in the Messiah. They were very disappointed in really what Jesus was doing as far as his political agenda, but they thought, well, maybe this is someone who will eventually bring in that great king and bring in the one who will throw in the Romans. So some thought that he was Elijah. Others thought he was Jeremiah. Now, there was another tradition that the scribes and the Pharisees and the old law had, the old Jewish people had, that maybe, uh, you know, Jeremiah would come back before the Messianic kingdom. And I guess there probably could have been some uh, similarities between Jesus and Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah, who wrote the book of Jeremiah, and of course the book of Lamentations, was known as the weeping prophet. Jesus was a crying prophet too. Jesus would spend some times weeping over the city. And I have no doubt in my mind, though the text is not explicit, that Jesus spent many nights in prayer and also tears because of His dedication to God and His people. And so maybe it was that Jesus had some similarities to what these folks thought Jeremiah had. You see, there was many opinions on the street about who Jesus was. But you know, I want us to notice a shift Because this shift that now occurs in the conversation with Jesus is the most important shift I think we can get from this text. And I think it's really the most important point. Now we're going to talk about the establishment of the church here in a moment, but I want us to get this point if we get nothing else from our little study and our time together tonight. Jesus has asked, 
Who is it that they are saying that I am? But then, after all of these answers, notice what he says in verse 15. And this is, in the Greek, very emphatic. It's like underlined and red printed and everything. He says, but who do you say that I am? Now, you know, that's a question that every one of us have to grapple with. You know, every one of us in this audience tonight have heard the name Jesus Christ. Now, not everyone in the world has heard the name Jesus Christ. Only twice that I can remember in my preaching career have I come run across people who didn't know who Jesus Christ was in some form or fashion. Many people know who Jesus is, but what do we here tonight think about Jesus Christ? Who is He to us? Is He just a good teacher? Is He someone that we kind of like the principles? Do we kind of like His story of love? Do we kind of like His message of salvation? Do we, what do we really think about Jesus? You see, that makes all the difference in the world. Because if we think Jesus, as Peter will confess, is the Son of God, then that means He has all authority. In fact, Jesus claimed that in Matthew 28, 18, when He said, All authority has been given to me, and in heaven and on earth. If He has all authority, then that means He has authority over our lives too, doesn't He? And anytime we don't let Jesus come into our hearts and have authority over our hearts and lives, we're rebelling against Him. So, when we know who Jesus is, it's going to make some changes in our life. Now, you know, when you get out on the street today, especially in the world, in fact, the world's come to us, so it's, it's anywhere, here in Oklahoma City, Kansas City, L.A., no matter where you go, you're going to find people who have all kinds of views about Jesus. There's going to be all kinds of philosophical and theological views about Jesus. You know, if you ask the Jewish friend, who's Jesus? They'll say, well, he was a good rabbi. You know, he wasn't the Son of God because God is one. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So, he's a rabbi, but that's about it. If you ask the Muslim, your friends in Islam, they will say, well, he was, a, he was a good imam, he was a good teacher. But he's certainly not the Son of God, because like the Jew, they'll say God has no sons. God is one. If you ask the atheist, who is Jesus? They'll say, well, he certainly wasn't the Son of God, because there's no God. And he is just a good teacher. He was a moralist. In fact, if you ask the ethicist or one who studies you know, philosophy, they'll say, oh yeah, Jesus was great. He was a philosophical guy way ahead of his time. You see, there are all kinds of answers. If you ask the Buddhist, who's Jesus? They'll say, oh, he was an enlightened one. He really was enlightened. He was, uh, you know, as it were, God, but hey, we're all God. We all got that divine spark within us, so we're all God. So, but Jesus was he, was, he was the Buddha, He was the enlightened one, really way up there on the, on, the, on, on, the, on the stream. But, you know, really, none of that matters. None of that matters. Oh, it matters, but it doesn't. It doesn't matter because really what matters first is what do we think of Jesus? Who do you, and I want you to take this personally tonight, who do you say that Jesus is? Is He simply, again, in your life a good teacher is he someone that just your folks sort of gave credit to? Or maybe they even believed he was the Son of God? But what do we believe? And you know, Jesus, I think, wants this to become personal with these folks. The older I get, the more I understand that, you know, religion and our faith in Jesus and our relationship with Jesus, and you've got to tie all those together. You can't separate them out. It really is about us. You know, so many times we say, well, it's not about us. Yes, it is. It's about us this time. It's about what we believe. Because if we don't believe that Jesus is really who He says He is, then we're not going to work for Him, are we? We're not going to submit our lives to Him, are we? We're not going to give ourselves to His kingdom growth, are we? So, Jesus says, listen, Matthew, 
Mark, well not Mark, but Matthew and, and Peter and all you other apostles, who is it that you say that I am? Well, we notice, of course, Peter in verse 16, Simon Peter answered. And I don't know why the other apostles didn't speak up, but Peter was always one of those guys who seemed to always have an answer. Sometimes it was the wrong answer. But he was always impulsive. He was always ready to at least say what he thought. And I suppose there's some redeeming value in that. Peter, on this occasion, he nails it. Peter answers and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I'm going to just develop that verse just for a moment, because I think it is an extremely important verse. Because, first of all, Peter says, you are the Christ. What's that term mean? What's the word Christ? Well, the word Christ is the Greek Christos. It's equivalent in the Old Testament. Hebrew is Messiah. So really, if you hear the word Messiah or you hear the word Christ, it's the same word. It's just one is Hebrew and one is Greek. Now, what do both of those terms mean in their respective languages? They mean the anointed one. The anointed one. Now, you know, you go back to the Old Testament and this idea of anointing plays prominently in the Old Law. Because there were three classes of individuals who were anointed. Now, by anointing, what I mean is people would come, maybe a, a, a priest, and he would pour oil on maybe a king's head. You remember um, Samuel, for example, anointed Saul as the first king of Israel, and Samuel was a judge, and he anointed Saul. It was a physical demonstration of the power that was going to be vested in uh, Samuel. But the anointed one was one in the Old Testament who was either a prophet, a priest, or a king. You didn't become a king without being anointed. You didn't become a priest without being anointed. A visible demonstration of the power that is vested in you as a servant of God. And so, of course, that whole concept of prophet, priest, and king kind of got wrapped up in the idea of the Messiah. And so when we think of the Messiah in the Old Testament, what we're longing for and what we're looking for is someone who will be all three of those. He'll be prophet, he'll be priest, he'll be king. And of course in the New Testament that came to be called the Christ or the Christos, the prophet, priest, and king. Now Peter says you are that. You are the one that we have been waiting for. You are the prophet, priest, and king. What do you mean, Peter? Well, let's think about it. You are the prophet. Okay, Jesus is our prophet today. Jesus speaks to us through His Word. You know, the writer of Hebrews says, God, who at various times and in various ways in the past spoke to our ancestors or the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by His Son. So you see, Jesus is our prophet. He's the one that we go to for information. He's the one that we go to to know how to approach God. He's our prophet. But then that leads us to number two, he is also our priest. In fact, not only is he our priest, he is our high priest. Now in the Old Testament, there were priests. There was the tribe of Levi, you remember, and all the priests came from the tribe of Levi. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. You remember all that? And of course you had the priesthood, but then you had the high priest. And the high priest was that guy who went in on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, once a year, and he offered for the sins of the people and he had a very special role to play. He was the one that went into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he there was right in the very presence of God. And of course it was a very serious, serious task that he had. 
Jesus is that for us. Jesus is our high priest. Now, according to Peter, we're all priests. We are a royal priesthood, all of us. We can offer prayers to God and sacrifice of our lives. In fact, Paul said in Romans chapter 12, to present our bodies a living sacrifice to God. He says, that's your reasonable service. But Jesus is the high priest. So, we're a group of priests as Christians. We can approach God. We are holy. Priests were always set apart. They were always holy. But we approach God through our high priest, Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul in 1 Timothy 2 says there is one mediator between God and man, the, uh, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. And Jesus, as it were, went behind that veil, and he went into heaven, as it were, with his own blood, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you want to read something really amazing, read about Jesus, the high priest in the book of Hebrews. Because it speaks of Jesus going in and offering His own blood. He was the Lamb of God. He was the sacrifice. He was the high priest who died for us. And He went behind the veil and into the presence of God. And there He said, God, here's the blood that you demand, perfect blood. And God said, it's good. It works. And Jesus sat down. You know those Old Testament priests, and this is not my subject tonight, but you have to bear with me. I love it. He said, you know, the Old Testament priests would stand daily working. They would stand daily ministering at the temple. They were on their feet all day long. Why? Because the job was never done. The people were sinners. But Jesus, when He offered His sacrifice, sat down. It's over. It's done. No other sacrifice ever need be made because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. As John said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So, Jesus is our high priest, but He's also our King. Now, of course, we don't like King Jesus sometimes. We like Jesus as Lord, but we don't, our Savior, but we don't like Him as Lord sometimes. But you know, this is King of kings and Lord of lords. All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And upon that authority, He commissioned the apostles to go preach the gospel. Where's that throne? Well, ultimately, that throne is in heaven, isn't it? But you know, we each got a throne in our hearts. And Jesus wants to sit on that throne. Something is going to sit on the throne of your heart. In fact, ultimately it's going to be Christ or it's going to be the devil. In fact, Paul in Romans 6 argues that to whom we give ourselves servants to obey, his servants we are to whom we obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Someone's going to sit on the throne of our hearts. And Jesus wants to be King of kings and Lord of lords. So when, Jesus, when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's saying, listen, you are the prophet you are the priest, you are the king. You are the messenger, you are the mediator, and you're the monarch. You are everything. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, we don't have time to develop this. We're running out of time. But let's continue on for a few more minutes. You are the Son of the living God. Now, what does that mean? Well, remember where they are. They're up there at Caesarea Philippi where all those gods and goddesses and pagan stone statues were. And even to this day you can see the remnants of them up there at Caesarea Philippi or what they call Tel Dan. Jesus says, or Peter says, no, you're the Christ of the living, Son of the living God. You see, God is not dead. God is a living God. God is not made of stone. He's not made of wood. He is not an inanimate object. He is the creator of the universe and He loves us. He loves us. And Peter says, you are His Son. Now, 
We can get very theological tonight, we won't, about what it means to be a son of God. He's not saying here that you were created by God. In fact, we know from Colossians 1 that Jesus created all things. He didn't create Himself. But He created, He was the instrument through which God created all things. But what does it mean when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? Well, here's what we use in Africa. And I'm going to use this expression and, and this idea. And uh, Keith Thompson, many of you probably know him. Uh, he and I use this a lot in Africa. We say, you know, I have a son. He has a son. I have a son. In fact, so many ways we're similar. We have one child apiece. And, and uh, we have different wives, of course, but we have one son. And, and uh, you know, and we say, you know something about my son, even though you've never seen him. And they'll go, no, we don't. Yes, you do. First of all, you know he's a Mzungu. He's white. Second of all, you know he's human. May not act like it all the time, but he is. And you go down the list of the human characteristics. You see, the son bears the likeness of the father, doesn't he? A son or daughter has the characteristics of their parents. And so when Peter says you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he's not saying, oh, you know, God created you or birthed you in normal way. He's saying you have the characteristics of your Father. Now we find Jesus saying that in John 14. You remember when the apostles come to Jesus and they say, uh, show us the Father, show us God. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen the characteristics. So when Peter says you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he's saying, listen, you have the characteristics of your father, deity. In other words, what Peter is saying is, you are God. Not God the Father, but God the Son. You are deity. Now, why does that make a difference? Now, tonight we don't have time to go through the rest of this passage in depth, but let me sort of wrap things up. What does it mean, or what's the importance of Peter saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? It's this authority thing. You see, God, by definition, is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. God, by very definition, is omnipotent. Because if something could be more powerful than God, then that would be God. And so then, if Jesus has those same inherent characteristics, then Jesus has all authority. And again, Matthew 28, Jesus says, that authority had been given to Him by His Father on heaven and in earth. Now that is going to play a major role in the rest of our study this week. Because it is only that authority that gave Jesus the right, the authority, the ability, really, the legitimate ability to build a church. No man has the ability or the right to really build a church. No man has the right to put his name on a church. No man has a right to develop the doctrines of a church. In fact, really, we could just say it this way, there is no church but the church that Jesus established. The others are just play church. They're not churches at all. Well, Jesus, of course, having been confessed as you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus confesses Peter as the son of John. He says, blessed are you, Simon, or Peter, son of Jonah, Bar-Jonah, which means son of John. In other words, hey, you've confessed me as deity, I'm confessing you as human. You've been wise to recognize who I am, and now I'm recognizing who you are. You're human, I'm divine. And of course, he says, you're Peter, and upon this, this rock I'll build my church. Now, if I had more time tonight, if we wanted to stay another 30 minutes, we could really go into that, because that's a wonderful little passage there that's been so misunderstood by some of the denominational world. 
Jesus is not building his church on Peter. Peter is a small stone. And that's what his name means. But the word that Jesus uses when he says, I'm going to build my church on this rock, is that of a massive bedrock. Something massive. What is that? It is the truth, the authority, the power that Jesus had as the Son of God. And he says, I'm going to build my church on that. It's my church. Whose church is it? Christ's. On what authority is it? I'm the Son of God. Now there is no other man, no other human ever or will ever walk the face of the earth that can claim, rightly claim, that. So Jesus alone has the ability and the power and the authority to build His church. Well, if you go on through that passage, you know Jesus says, even the gates of Hades, hell as the old King James says, which is really not the best translation, will not prevail against the church. Well, Jesus was talking about His death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus was going in just a few months down to the Hadean realm, so to speak, having died on the cross, but He was going to come forth victorious and rise on the third day, which, by the way, is the ultimate apologetic. It is the ultimate proof that Jesus is the Son of God. So Jesus says, that is the authority upon which I'm going to build my church. Well, this week, Lord willing, we'll talk about the church Tomorrow night, Lord willing, we're going to talk about the apostolic church, the church in the first century, major doctrines and major uh, concepts. Then, of course, on Friday night, Lord willing, we'll talk a little bit about the, restora- or the, the Reformation period and the falling away of the New Testament church. And then, Lord willing, on Saturday night, we'll talk about the restoration and where we are now and what we need to do now as Christians to bring God's Word and God's church to the world. Those are the thoughts tonight. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you know, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus died for our sins, and Jesus gave His life so that we might have the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the Son of God. And that then is the reason that His sacrifice, because He's perfect, can then be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. No human, because of our sins, could ever offer our own self, or our own blood for our sins. Because we're imperfect. But God sent Jesus, and He died for us. If you're here tonight, you're willing to hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, what He did for us. If you're willing to believe it, if you're willing to repent of your sins and confess Jesus as the Son of God, like Peter did, we'll be happy to assist you tonight in the waters of baptism. Or if you've taken those steps and your life is away from Christ, why don't you come back renewing that confession, if you will, your belief, your faith in Jesus Christ while we stand and while we sing.